well-known story of two men and a young man, Arnold Dobson, Harold Mast, and his son. Uh, they were in uh, Death Valley, and it was a, the highest temperature possible uh, right in the middle of the summer. And they were traveling across Death Valley and were not heard from, so they went back and found their bodies seven miles, 14 miles, and 17 miles from an abandoned car. It's a pretty tragic situation. Well, to come to find out, they made the wrong choice. Less than a mile ahead of them was a, uh, a grove of willows and a spring with enough water uh, to be able to meet their needs. But they went back to a ranch home they had seen behind them. And in going back, they died. And for us as believers, our Christian walk is a step-by-step -step forward, always forward. Now let me just say, you know, we'll use the term backsliding glibly, and it can mean a number of things. But going back one step is a disastrous thing because there is never just one step. You see, one step back is a step of unbelief. It is a step of unwillingness to obey, whatever. But it puts us squarely under the power of the flesh and very vulnerable to the evil one. If you'll turn with me first, this is not our major text, but if you turn with me to the familiar passage in Numbers where the Israelites made the wrong choice. And... In fact, it was even sung about here by the men about the courage of Joshua. And they came to Kadesh Barnea after a couple of years in preparation. God now said to go into the land. It was very clear. And so they sent the 12 spies and they searched the land and uh, saw that there were uh, giants there. There were things that had to be overcome. I mean, always in Whatever endeavor God calls us to, it's going to take a miracle for God to overcome the opposition. But anything that God's called us to do, God will do that. Well, Caleb understood that, and so did Joshua, verse 30 of chapter 13 of Numbers. And Caleb stilled the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and possess it, for we are well able to overcome it. Don't you like Caleb? I mean, he just had that zeal for God. But the men that went up with him said, We be not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we. And they brought up an evil report of the land, and so forth. And then we read in verse 1 of chapter 14, And all the congregation lifted up their voice and cried, and the people wept that night, and the people murmured against Moses and against Aaron. And the whole congregation said unto them, Would God that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would God that we had died in this wilderness? Well, Moses and Aaron fell on their face when they're saying, let's go back, let's get a captain to lead us away from this. And uh, verse 6, And Joshua the son of Nun, and Caleb the son of Jephunneh, which were of them that searched the land, rent their clothes. And they spake unto all the company of the children of Israel, saying, The land which we passed through to search it, it was exceeding good. If the Lord delight in us, then he will bring us into this land and give it us, a land which floweth with milk and honey. Only rebel not against the Lord, 
Neither fear ye the people of the land, for they are bred for us. Their defense is departed from them, and the Lord is with us. Fear them not. But all the congregation bade stone them with stones, and the glory of the Lord appeared in the tabernacle of the congregation before all the children of Israel. And so Moses uh, now faces uh, God having to react to them. And, that, uh, and Moses pleads for the nation of Israel. And we read down at verse uh, 29. I'll just jump ahead to that. Your carcasses shall fall in this wilderness, and all that were numbered of you, according to your whole number, from 20 years old and upward, which have murmured against me. Turn over now to Hebrews chapter 3. And we find here the New Testament perspective. This is still not our text, but I want this as background. Hebrews chapter 3, we have this matter of not getting into the, the spiritual life that God wants us to have. And the illustration of Israel is used, verse 8, Harden not your hearts as in the day of propagation, in the day of temptation in the wilderness. When your fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw my works forty years, wherefore I was grieved with them that generation. And they do always err in their hearts, and they have not known my ways. So I swear in my wrath they shall not enter into my rest. Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief and departing from the living God. And great exhortation there. And then verse 19. So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief belief. They were not that far from the land that God had promised them. They were very close to seeing God do great and mighty miracles. They were about to inherit the possession that God had promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They had seen miracles that were breathtaking in Egypt. They knew what God would do. And yet when they came up to putting their own life on the line and believing God's way is right and that they could trust Him, they did not believe God. And for 38 years, everyone 20 years age and older wandered in the wilderness and died. I am sure they got tired of funerals. I suppose in the last couple of years there was quite a few because the youngest of those would have been only 58 years of age at that point, but they died. That entire generation did not have the opportunity. That's very sobering. Now, I want us to go to our text, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and here we're going to see how they could do such a thing, how they could come to this great opportunity with the promises of God and the proof of God and then not enter in and how they could be in unbelief. They had had faith that the blood of the Passover would deliver them, and they were delivered from God's judgment. Uh, they had miraculous deliverances from the world when they stepped out by faith. They had the very presence of God in the Shekinah glory in the cloud, the glorious cloud, and the pillar of fire by night. Um, they were given water and bread miraculously. They had victory against Amalek. They had seen the divine manifestation in an awesome way at, the, at Mount Sinai, and the law was given. And they had the wonderful tabernacle and sacrificial system and all the teaching that went with that. All of that was established before Kadesh and Barnea. They had gone through the Red Sea, and God had delivered them. And that's what's mentioned here in the first part of 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And yet, 
they turned back. Now, let me just say, they were glad for his blessings and for themselves to have their needs met. But they were not willing to risk anything to gain the full inheritance. And many American believers today are very thankful for salvation, very thankful for the way God blesses. But when it comes to an all-out surrendered life in which only miracles will deliver and only the power of God will make that life work, the vast majority, I would say over 95% of American believers, probably higher than that, are like the Israelites in the wilderness. We have had enough believers in America to have mighty revivals sweep this country time after time after time. And uh, we have not. And we've got to be very careful, though we're stirred by the right kind of teaching and God has blessed you in your churches and the emphasis here. It's very easy for us to fall into some of the very same traps that these Israelites fell in, into. And so that's what we want to look at. So if you look with me here at 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1, Moreover, brethren, I would not have, not that ye should be ignorant, how that our fathers were under the cloud, that great Shekinah glory cloud, and all passed through the sea, and were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and did all eat the same spiritual bread, meat, excuse me, and did all drink the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. I mean, Christ's very presence was there with them. But with many of them God was not well pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things, now please note verse 6. Now these things were our examples to the extent that we should not. Alright, here we get a progression of how they could come to Kadesh Barnea and actually say no. Because even a new Christian who is filled with the Spirit and is not willfully uh, unbelieving, is not right at that point on purpose living in sin, a Christian that is even a new Christian can move forward in mighty victory. But when Christians make these types of decisions, that's when, when they come to the great opportunity to move into greater victory and into the promises that God have, they miss it and do not experience it. So number one, and this is the tricky one, this is the American problem. They desired the normal good life. They desired the normal good life. Looking back at the verse that I stopped right in the middle of, verse 6, now these things were our examples to the intent we should not lust, not desire after evil things as they also lusted. Now, in Numbers 11, verse 4, the children of Israel also wept again and said, Who shall give us flesh to eat? We remember the fish which we did eat in Egypt freely, the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the garlics and the garlic. But now our soul is dried away. There is nothing at all besides this miraculous heaven-sent manna. They didn't say that. Manna before our eyes. Now, the world, when you're not walking with God, can begin to look good to any Christian. 
And I'm not talking about the wicked, glitzy, ugly world, but the normal life. Now, this is a big problem with your generation right now. There is a huge desire to, well, I'll live a Christian life, but I'm going to pursue my own vocation. In fact, most Christian education right now is all about a vocation, not ministry, not all-out surrender, not doing whatever God wants us to do, but couched in the manner of, I will serve the Lord, but... I want to be able to pursue the American dream. In fact, many of the parents of young people of your generation actually want their, parent, their children to be successful and enjoy the good things of life. <laughs> I hope your generation is beginning to wake up that that is not naturally going to happen. As you sit here, the stock market is crashing today, and it's been doing that for the last couple of days. No one knows what's going to happen, but everyone knows that our economy is as fragile as fragile could be. It would not surprise me that what is worth a dollar today uh, will only be tenth of that within just a few years. And I don't mean to be a negative person, but it is very foolish right now to bank on life being the good life. Now, many young people, many older people will think, well, I'm going to take what I have and I'm going to serve the Lord. I'm going to be faithful. And that's wonderful. But let me just say this for your generation of young people that were trained up in godly Christian homes. It's one thing for a layman 45 years of age to maintain his business and do what he should do on the job, just like what you find in the New Testament, and give themselves to the work of the Lord as the best they can. You, don't, uh, you probably don't realize it, but we've got many a layman here who works 50, 60 hours a week, and they spend 20 hours in ministry. I mean, they are just discipling. They're working with people. They're giving of themselves. They are servants of the Lord that have an impact. That's why a church like this can go forward. But it's another thing, someone who's been raised about the priority of the need of the world to reach all around the world, the unreached people groups, what God is doing today, understanding the Word of God, and then to choose to have, well, sort of the normal layman's life, and I'll live for God too. That is a different perspective. Let me tell you right now, I could line man after man of our church or your church up here that have a heart for God, and they would say, if I could go back 30 years, I'd give my life completely to God. You are in an enviable position. I've seen many of our adults with tears just excited about the privilege of having Baptist College of Ministry right here in our church because they are able to sacrifice for you to do what they want to do. And I hate to say it, unless there's a very clear special calling and you would know it and you'd be on fire for God, most of the time when a young person makes that choice to just do well in life and serve the Lord too, coming out of your background, it's compromise. And they don't just stay in that position. They go and what happens is they wake up when they're about 35 and then they groan and realize, no, God had his hand on my life and I chose the wrong direction. So I really want you to think about that because 
I don't know about you, I like being comfortable. You like being comfortable? Yeah, I mean, you like it. I mean, who wants it? things hard? I mean, uh, I don't want to go out and have to be deprived. And, and I mean, I'm all for fasting, but not, but not because I have to, you know, and, uh, and all these things. No, that's the natural way. Unless we have given our lives to the Lord, we have a greater cause, and we realize we have only these few years to live with Christ on this earth, and we're willing to give up whatever He calls us to give up, because He will gain so much more and serve Him with all of our hearts. But the temptation is, we want the normal, comfortable life. And so we give in to natural desires rather than the prompting of the Holy Spirit. And we get into natural reasonings for uh, fulfillment. And here's a lot of the reasonings go that it's not necessarily bad. You know, tell me what's wrong with that. That's already the wrong question. The issue is what does God want? What is the best? What is God's highest for me? Not what can I get away with? Oh, I remember how God, at your, at your age, God just smote me with that. Get rid of that argument. It's never how close to the cliff can I get. It's how far from it can I get. And how far can I get into the will of God to serve Him? And uh, it changed everything. And so, I mean... Uh, they liked um, leeks and garlics. Garlic, you know, I think they were probably had a little Italian uh, background there. <laughs> no, uh, that's uh, part of the Middle Eastern uh, kind of thing. I'm thinking, man, uh, that's what makes you want to go back, to eat fish, garlic, and leeks. You know, that's, that's what, they, what they said and didn't appreciate the manna. But that's how it can be. You know, it's so subtle. And so... Uh, some of the subtle things are trusting the fulfillment of desires to meet our needs, uh, enjoying just work. You can get tripped up by that and enjoy succeeding in work. Amusements, got, we've got a lot of coping mechanisms today and amusements that are available. Um, the different habits that are escapes from the pressures of life, just busyness, possessions, the toys that men have uh, and women have, it's, it's, uh, uh, it's all right there. Social enjoyment, success, approval, attracted to the good life, which is frankly an illusion. Uh, the well-known statement of Wesley, whatever cools my affection for Christ is the world. You know, I look at the messages of Billy Sunday and of um, Dwight L. Moody and uh, of uh, Wesley himself I mean, and uh, Spurgeon. They railed against the theater. Well, if we would have gone to the theater back then, we would have thought it was pretty high-level stuff, you know. But it was already heading into, if you start looking and analyze what was being done, and a number of other things that they dealt with because those were allurements to live the good life. I read just uh, over the holidays the uh, biography of C.T. Studd, who had everything. His dad was wealthy. His dad had gotten saved and then became a godly layman and then died abruptly. And he had an impact on his boys' lives, but you know, not to the fullest because he didn't bring them up with a full understanding of what needed to be done. And so C.T. Studd became the number one cricketer in England, which made him the number one cricketer in the world. 
And I don't understand all that he did. I read that and I don't understand cricket, but uh, it's pretty amazing what he did. And so it would be like he would be the uh, most valuable player for the major leagues, you know, year after year and uh, win every award possible. Plus, he had an enormous, enormous uh, fortune. But God got a hold of his heart, and he got into that early missionary movement, and God stirred him. And he finally came to the place he realized, with all the pressures on him, it was 100% surrender or he was had. In other words, he couldn't make one provision for anything. So right in the height of his career, dropped cricket. Shocked the British world. Then he and his wife gave away their entire fortune to the last pound because he didn't want anything to hold him back. George Mueller, by the way, he actually became a great help to George Mueller. He was part of the answer to prayer to George Mueller. But he kept saying all the way along, and when he would work with his missionaries, first he was in China, then India, then his major work was in Africa, but he would constantly say, until you come to the place of 100% surrender, where you see God's will as the motivation for your life, you will never experience the walk with the Holy Spirit and the power of God that can be seen in your life. You know, if we look back at a and some of these people, he obviously would have been pretty impressive being an athlete. But you look at, I just read A.W. Tozer, you read some of these other men, there would have been no human way they should have had the influence they did. But they were 100% surrendered, and then God could work. And see, what happened to the next generation that came into the land under Joshua, they were 100% surrendered. And when they did that, God did miracles. There's no way that that group should have defeated the powerful armies of the Canaanites that had the backing, now 40 years later, of a rebuilt Egypt. And they did it by the power of God. And so let me just say this. If your heart's yearning to be used of God, you can't have a 90% surrender and a 10% holdback. Or you're going to be hitting your head against the wall over and over. I'm just saying there has to be a real dying to our ambitions and ourself and even just the normal life. And I'm talking about getting rid of wicked things. That certainly, we'll see that here. But this is where it started. That's where um, they're in numbers when they said, no, we're not going to go in. It didn't start with just rebellion. It started with, we want, we want things to just go back to normal. Why don't you hear that in our country today? We just want things to go back to normal. You know, if God wants us to have real turmoil in our country, are you willing to accept that? Are you willing to accept if God says that economy is going to go back and America is going to suffer, but that's going to bring a move of God, would you be willing for that? Or do you want things to go back to normal? Do you want them to be what you're comfortable with? And so... Uh, this is very Im- important for us to understand. And uh, even in the area of ministry, I find with pastors, it's not comfortable if you're going to serve God. It's not comfortable in every way. You've got to sacrifice. You've got to be willing to give of yourself completely. You cannot worry about men's approval. And if you're really going to see God work, there has to be, even in that area, total dependence upon God no matter what the ramifications are. 
And when that occurs, uh, there's an emptiness and a leanness in our souls. And another famous statement, Wilbur Chapman, that this rule governs my life. Anything that dims my vision for Christ or takes away my taste for Bible study or cramps my prayer life or makes Christian work more difficult, it's wrong for me. And I totally agree with him. And I must as a Christian turn away from it. You know, there's some stands I've taken in my life I wouldn't bring up to you because they are so seemingly neutral. And I wouldn't want to put a false conscience, but there's just certain things I don't do. Because I know that it, it just is a waste of my time, and I've got to, I've got to uh, not let anything get me into a neutral coping state, whatever it is. And uh, and some of those things are really are defining times. And then secondly, they redefined God. Let's go back to chapter ten here, verse seven. Neither be ye idolaters. As were some of them, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. This is an amazing thing. I don't have the time here to go to Exodus chapter 32 and read uh, what happened. Moses comes off of the mount with Joshua and he hears noise down there. And uh, Joshua thinks it's a sound of war. And Moses said, no, the people have corrupted themselves. And one of the greatest intercessions ever given is by Moses at this point where he's willing to give his life for uh, the, uh, the people of Israel. It really shows you the very heart of God in the life of Moses. But uh, as you look at that story, here's Moses meeting with God. They had, they had sensed the glory of God. They had seen it, the earthquakes, the lightning, the thunder. God had been present. And yet, because Moses was up there that 40 days, and uh, they were waiting, the, uh, their lack of wanting to really yield to the Lord began to come to the fore. And, uh, and so they had, and you've got to understand, 430 years in Egypt is a long time. And so the gods of Egypt had worked their way into the worship of Jehovah. You see, God was working in their lives and manifesting these things. He's so so patient with us. And one of the great gods was the the bull. uh, And so the golden calf was a uh, way of, of honoring uh, what they had come out of, and yet they called this golden calf Jehovah. And, um, and let me just say this. When we aren't fully surrendered, full worship for God's too hard to do. You know, if we really define God for who He is, it's, pretty, it's demanding. He's holy. He's perfect. Uh, we are to be a living sacrifice. Our God is, is just our God is immutable. He does not change. Our God uh, is uh, thankfully merciful and loving, but it's based upon our understanding of our devotion to Christ, and on and on you could go. And for these, I can tell you right now, for these people, the, it was daunting to understand the holiness of Jehovah God. And they knew it was real. Now, young people, you know it's real too. But you know what the temptation is? Redefine the God of the Bible. Do you realize that compromising evangelicalism, and of course liberalism, 
but a compromising evangelicalism has done that for decades now. God doesn't really, that's not really that important to him. The Bible really doesn't emphasize that. And so you come down to a mixture of human thinking and desires and doctrine. And so a more tolerant God must be developed. There must be a way to feel spiritual yet not be fully surrendered. Uh, That's the natural tendency. Won't God just... Now, on the one side, does God uh, demand performance for you to be accepted by Him? No, thank the Lord. Aren't you glad He unconditionally loves you? And we teach you that all the time. We're going to be having extreme love as our theme in the Victory Conference. And you'll, I, I trust, will be overwhelmed. And I've already been overwhelmed just talking about how much He loves us. But uh, we need to understand that uh, God wants us to live a spiritual fellowship life with Him. And that... Uh, and so if, if we really understand that, that means that, that God's not satisfied with a decent life. He's only satisfied with a radical life. And that goes against the flesh. Now we get stirred by hearing that kind of preaching. But what are you going to do in the decisions that you make? And let me just say, if you do not fully yield to the Lord, you have to change your God. You have to begin to change what he accepts and doesn't accept. I mean, how in the world can the worship today that's called evangelical be uh, at all uh, uh, given any kind of an argument based upon the Word of God? In fact, in uh, the the account there in Exodus 32, in their worship, what did they do? They danced. They were not modestly clothed and today when you look at modern contemporary worship you see all of the above frankly it i i cannot help think when i happen to view uh, a scene for instance i had to do some analysis of hillsong and what they did there in australia and i thought this is exodus 32 through and through That's the only way you can explain it. It's flesh-filled, emotionally satisfying worship. And when the leaders even question whether you should take a strong stand on homosexuality, you can see what they have done is redefined our God. And it happens all the time. You will find in your churches when people are unwilling to really serve the Lord, they know they should serve the Lord, but they will go to a church in which the God of that church tolerates their lack of surrender lifestyle. And you will see it happen. I just had uh, one of the leaders of uh, a church, a fairly good-sized church, tell me they have lost uh, just a load of people to contemporary churches recently. But the problems in their life were not being solved. By the way, that's why I pray about this purity series. Because I'm absolutely convinced when men and women find there's hope in Jesus and they can have victory over their secret sins. No longer do they start looking for the lower kind of Christian life. They realize there is victory in Christ. And I'm convinced the problems in our churches today is a secret sin, especially because of technology in the lives of men in particular, but ladies also. 
And if you don't get victory, you're going to have to do something to try to salve your conscience and to be able to function, and you will redefine your God. Now remember, this all happened before they ever got to Kadesh Barnea. Okay. So this heart problem was just uh, was, uh, uh, developing. And, and let me just say, too, you cannot be viewing the wrong things, obviously, the things that the purity series would deal with, but you cannot be viewing regular television and all of the other Netflix and so forth and, and all of that without beginning. And if you have a desire to live that kind of lifestyle, you're going to try to find excuses why God tolerates it. There was no battle 50 years ago about drinking among Bible-believing Christians. It's only because Bible-believing Christians today want to live in accordance with what seems to be so tempting in the world. And uh, so uh, God was grieved, Exodus 32, 9, And the Lord said unto Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may wax hot against them, that I may consume them. I will make of thee a great nation. And of course Moses said, No. You know, he interceded and God obviously blessed because of his intercession. But that's how God reacts to that. What does he say in Ephesians, I'm sorry, Revelation chapter 3 about the Laodicean church? It makes me sick. Folks, anything but spirit-empowered Christianity is an affront to God. And right now, if you know you're not spirit-filled and fully surrendered, but you look good and you're, you know, and you have a heart to do things, but you're not totally there, you're not making God happy. You didn't say, oh, that's good. He's about 75% there. No, that's not um, pleasing to the Lord because you're heading down a road that is going to get to this place. Well, then these next things I can say very quickly. You cannot live in the flesh long, desiring the normal life, uh, trying to redefine your God then so that he will put up with the kind of lifestyle that you want. I'm not even talking about a bad lifestyle. It's just a non-surrendered, all-out Christian life that believes God. But that's not going to stay there. Satan's too powerful. And so we read in verse 8, Neither let us commit fornication, as some of them committed and fell in one day three and twenty thousand. This is this terrible advice of Balaam, who was such a, uh, a uh, uh, what's the word for it, is supposedly a man of God wanting to make profit off of the ministry. God would only allow him, as you know, to bless there as uh, uh, Balak wanted him to curse the Israelites, but he told Balak, we find later that he said the way you'll corrupt them is through causing them to be involved in immorality. And God judged him. God killed him. And we read in uh, Numbers 25.1, And Israel abode in Shittim, and the people began to commit fornication with the daughters of Moab, and they called the people unto the sacrifices of their gods, and the people did eat and bowed down to their gods. Now folks, Take heed when you think you stand, lest you fall. And can you imagine this occurring right in the middle of the people of God? Thousands. I mean, that, this immorality was obvious. It was in front of everything, because we know what happened when Phineas saw that one of the princes leading a Moabitish woman into his tent. He goes and he acts 
according to the judgment of God upon them. And God gave him an everlasting house because of his hatred against that. But see, this was the spirit of these people. Moab could not have tempted the Israelites if they were believing God. They weren't walking with God. They wanted the normal life. They had redefined their God. And now, even though many of them did not get involved in fornication, they probably would have if they could have. And so, uh, what happens is, uh, Christians begin to feel the pressure, especially in the area of sensuality. We're in the moral revolution. We say a lot about that. I, I probably hear more about that, read more about that than anything. It's incredible where we are in just a couple of years, but it's been coming for years. I really think the divorce and remarriage uh, uh, battle lost decades ago set us up for the lack of respect to marriage and God's created order. And, of course, evolution brought us here. But you're living in a... Listen, you are seeing and hearing things that when I was younger I didn't know about. I wouldn't know what the word transgender meant. Wouldn't have a clue. And you know about perverseness and all of this. When I was uh, in, um, uh, when my dad was pastoring in Detroit, he had to go see someone in prison because they had uh, committed homosexuality. And the law in Detroit was that if you committed homosexuality, you'd be put in prison. A little different world we live in today, isn't it? So it was a, it was a little bit different. Uh, we. Uh, as a, as a youth pastor, I was dealing with improper touching, but we didn't have very much immorality going on in evangelical circles. And it was a vast difference between evangelical teenagers and um, the world. Now there's no difference. No difference. And uh, the sensuality and the pressures that are there. And uh, you're going to be facing it in your churches. But I'm telling you, you've got to understand these steps are one after the other. And then we go to uh, verse 9. Neither let us tempt Christ, as some of them tempted and were destroyed of the serpents. Numbers 21.5. And the people spake against God and against Moses. Wherefore have ye brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no bread, neither is there any water. Our soul loatheth this light bread. And the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and much people of Israel died. They despised the chastening of the Lord. They were angry that God had dealt with the fornication situation. They were angry that Korah had been, had been uh, uh, you know, and all, they were angry at how uh, the rebellion of Korah and all had been handled. They were uh, standing up against the men uh, of God that were leading Israel at that time. And that bitterness uh, that comes when you don't handle uh, the chastening of the Lord right shows that there's been a protracted season of carnality which then led them to have this uh, affront to God and this affront to the leadership I'm telling you, God allows things for our good. I can't help but think of my dear grandmother. She lost everything in the land bust in uh, uh, 1927. They lost even more in the Depression starting in 1929. She lost much in the hurricane that came through, the mighty hurricane of that time. 
Her son was paralyzed from his waist down. She almost lost uh, my mother uh, prior to my being born. Uh, she had a tubal pregnancy and it was just a miracle of God that she lived. Her husband died uh, fairly early in, in his life. And all of that made her a woman that loved the Lord. <laughs> she responded right. And think of the generations of impact that her faith had. And yet I've seen many a person, because they wanted the good life, not respond like you heard preached in the Spiritual Awakening Conference, and the depth of what life is really all about. And so then verse 10, neither murmur. This is where they said no. He has some of them also murmured and destroyed and destroyed here. Now all of these things happened unto them for in samples. Now note this, and they are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. Wherefore let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. Now as you know, I don't usually preach a warning kind of message like this very often. I try to really preach encouragement to you. But I do understand the pressures and sometimes I can be a little idealistic in thinking of what God is doing in your lives. But you're made of the same thing I was made of at your age. I, and I realize that it's very easy to fall into the early traps that will lead you when God finally says, I want you to go and I want you to serve me here. I want you to sacrifice this. I want you to believe this. But it's going to cost you something. And you say, no. And you wander in the wilderness. Thankfully, we don't get stuck our whole life we can repent and get right with God, but damage is done. It's not a full parallel. But this does say this is an example for us today. And so I want to encourage you, even, oh, schoolwork's too much. Pressures are too hard. You know, oh, do we really have to be that separated? Um, you know, there's some things, I look at other people my age, they seem to really be enjoying all the stuff that's going on out there. You look at the dating world, ah, maybe. I know how all those things go. Now you know that's not the best, but still the temptation is there. And the minute you start making the little compromises, then you start redefining God a little bit, then the sin can come in, and then that rebellion can come in, and you just say no. I trust none of you will ever say no to God. By the way, his pathway is glorious. Satan says it's just awful. <laughs> Listen, no one who's ever surrendered their life to God has ever been sorry. There's nothing sweeter than serving the Lord. Don't miss God's will. God wants to do through you what he did through a C.T. stud. A.W. Tozer, these men that I've just been reading and many others that we can mention. He's the same God. It wasn't they were greater men. They just believed that he was a great God. And I want to encourage you, know your own heart, for the heart is deceitful. And if you see just little inklings of wrong thinking, that garlic leeks mentality, oh, I just like to not have it so hard. That's the first step. That really can lead you down a pathway that can be very destructive. Satan will take any little opening he can get. So let's let this be our example. Aren't we glad we have all we have in Christ? Well, let's, uh, let's go the other direction.
Let's don't go backward like they did in Death Valley. Let's take that a few steps more and there's springs of living water for us. Let's bow our heads. You're here 